AG1 class from a, a private school here in Abu Dhabi. And so you have a, a class full, a bus full of excited little kids wanting to go see all the animals and go feed the giraffes with their long, gross purple tongues with the green saliva. But they're just thrilled to do it and feed the bunnies and they just can't wait, which is, by the way, why a lot of kids like our church because you go to the zoo, so that's definitely a blessing. But picture this class after they've seen all the exhibits and they sit down for lunch and then after they've eaten, they all line up in a queue and they're very excited to get their ice cream cone after they've eaten their, their lunch. Now picture one of these children that was in the back of the line, he walks up to the front, he cuts in front of everyone, because no one does that, right? Like, no one ever cuts in front of you here in Abu Dhabi. So, so this child, probably following his dad's example, driving, he, he cuts in front of everyone, and he goes in front of the line. Now, all the other children that were just defrauded by this, this one child, what do you think they're going to say? The four-year-olds. It's not fair, right? They're going to say, teacher, teacher, it's not fair, he's cutting. Why? Why do you think these four-year-olds are going to cry out to the authority for justice? Because it is, it is a, it's an injustice for this child to cut in front of all the others and ice cream first. It's not right. And the other small children feel that assault. They feel as though they have just been wronged. And they should because they have been wronged. Why is it that even small children understand injustice? All of us do. Every one of us understands when we are defrauded, when we're deceived or lied to or mistreated. We have this very natural, hardwired, God-given sense of fairness and what's right and wrong. And whenever we're being wronged, we cry out, that's not fair. That's not right. And it's in our own human nature that we have a desire for justice to be upheld. Why? Why do you think? Because we have a God in heaven who is just. God is the ultimate good and just judge. Everything that he does is right, and he upholds justice, and he has made us as humans in his image to reflect him, and so therefore we have this very natural desire for it. But the problem is in our world, there is corruption, and there are many injustices that take place in this world. There are many people that are violated, that are assaulted, that are not treated fairly, and we know it. And many of you have experienced it. And living in this country, many of you are currently experiencing great injustice. You know the frustrations, and you know that you see it all around you. But let me make it a little bit personal. Lest we pontificate on the injustice in the world, let's bring it down and make it personal. How do you respond when you are not treated fairly? When there is injustice directed towards you, how do you respond? This is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And how should a follower of Jesus respond to suffering unjustly? 
please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue in our series in 1 Peter. A series called Expatriate. So following Jesus in a foreign land. In our series, we're now in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And we're talking about this concept of suffering unjustly and how we are called by God to respond. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. If you're taking notes, let me give you the primary truth from this text. And so the main idea that we see here is that disciples are called to display the glory of God in the middle of unjust suffering. And so you and I, the people of God, right here, are called to display the glory of God in the middle of unjust suffering. Remember the context. We looked at this the last two weeks. Chapter 2, verse 9. We see that we belong to God, that we have received his mercy so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so our lives are designed to show God. Our lives as image bearers of God, we have been redeemed. We have his spirit. Now we have the ability to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so then we display his glory. People who look at our lives collectively and individually should see a glimpse of what God is like. And so today's sermon is titled, Suffering Unjustly, a Display of God's Glory. And you see this in verse 18 as he begins this paragraph. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So this immediate context, you're talking to servants. So people that were under the authority of, it says, of a master. And so servants here are called to respect, to honor, to obey good and gentle authority. But not only that, he says, but also honor and respect, he says, also the unjust. Now, the word unjust, the word actually there is crooked or perverse. So morally bankrupt is what we're, what we're talking about here. So lacking justice, lacking goodness and morality, being crooked. He says, honor them, respect them, the authority over you, even when they're unjust. Even to harsh masters. 
unfair authority. Now, we could easily say, oh, well, good thing for me, I'm not a first century servant. Good thing for me, I'm a 21st century whatever you are, wherever you're from, however you define who you are, you say, well, I'm, I'm, that's definitely not me. Like, I'm not a first century servant. So let's just dismiss this and move on to something a little bit more appealing to me because I don't really like where this sermon is starting. I don't like this text very much. If you read this in context, he's talking to all believers. We just read verses 24 and 25 talking about God's people who have been saved, who belong to Christ, that he died for us. Christ didn't just die for first century servants. He died for all of his people of all time. And so, yes, the immediate context is he's talking to servants, but the application, it applies to everyone. The timeless truth in here applies to you and me as much as it does to those that were there in the first century reading this letter by the apostle Peter. And so what we're seeing here is this paragraph is in the greater context of chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 12, that portion of 1 Peter is one unit that's describing how all of life, all of society is designed to display the glory of God. And that even includes things like marriage, which we'll look at next week. And so all of life should be a display of God's glory, including how we submit to authority even when it lacks justice. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been hurt by someone? Have you ever been slandered by someone? Has anyone ever lied to you that you really trusted? In those moments, in those moments when we feel the sting of injustice and of being wronged, in those moments, it's very natural for us as fallen, sinful human beings, all of us, what's natural is we want payback. That's what we want. We want to pay back the person for what they did to us. We want that person that hurt us, we want them to feel pain as well. We think, well, they made me hurt. I have all this pain because of you, so now I want you to hurt as well. And part of it is our, our desire for justice, that we want justice to be upheld. But the problem is you and I aren't the judge. You and I don't have infinite wisdom. You and I aren't able to always be objective. And so we are not set up as the judge or jury. God is the judge. And so it is not up to us to pay that person back. We trust God with that. Because when we want to pay someone back for hurting us, typically how do we do it? We do things like we criticize them. Or we'll slander that person. Or we'll make threats to that person, or we'll withhold a good to that person, we'll hold a grudge towards him or her. And that's the way that we tend to want to pay back whenever they've hurt us. So when we're enduring this unjust suffering, it's natural to want to uphold justice, but that is not our place. We are called to endure unjust suffering without bitterness to endure unjust suffering without retaliation. We are not to return evil for evil. We are to pay evil with good. 
So whenever evil is done to us, we do good to those who hurt us. We pray for those who persecute us. We show grace to those who assault us. This is radical, is it not? I mean, is this normal? Is this normal human behavior? No, it's not. This is absolutely not normal or natural for any of us. And so we're talking about casual or cultural Christianity. It's very different from true born again of the Spirit followers of Jesus that are lifelong committed learners and followers of Jesus. What I'm talking about here is truly radical. It's very different from the world. We are expatriates in this world after all. This world is not our home. We should be different. We should stand out. Why? Because the Spirit of God who is holy is in us and he makes us more like him, which is holy. And so how do we do this? And I'm really asking, how? How can we display the goodness, the forgiveness, the patience, the holiness, the mercy, the grace of God? How do we display the character of God in the middle of unjust suffering? This text tells us how. There are four truths, and they're sequential. They're building as he's revealing this here. So let's look at these together. So we display the glory of God in the middle of unjust suffering. Number one, first truth, by the grace of God. We're able to do this only by the grace of God. You see it in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. He just told us to do this. He just told us to show patience and kindness, even to the perverse. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God would endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So he says this is something that is gracious when you're able to suffer unjustly. So left to ourselves, our own abilities or powers, there's no way that we're ever going to display God's character when suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. This, by the way, let's just be very clear in what this is. This call to show God's glory in the middle of unjust suffering. This is not a rule to follow. You know what this is? This is a miracle to be experienced. This is not something that you do in your own power because you can't. This is a divine, supernatural, empowering, a gracious thing that we receive the grace of God. And then through his spirit empowering us, we then begin to reflect the grace of God. He pours in his grace and then out comes praise to his grace. It tributes to his grace. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's showing his grace showing what he has done, and people then see a glimpse of God himself. This is only by the grace of God. You see it in verse 20 as well. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, if you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, it is the gracious thing in the sight of God. If you are foolish or disobedient or lazy, or if you're doing things at work, for example, that are really going to get you in trouble, and then, and, then, and then you get in trouble, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're being foolish. 
And you deserve that consequence because you were not showing good work ethic. You were gossiping or whatever. You were stealing or whatever the problem was. Don't call it persecution. You were a bad employee. And so he says here, if you're suffering for being foolish, that's not showing God's glory. But if you do good and suffer, he says, if you do good and suffer, did you, did you catch that? If you do good and suffer for it, not if you do bad, if you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When we are suffering injustice and we are doing it with patience, with meekness, with humility, without retaliating, without bitterness, it's displaying the glorious character of God. It's showing you or showing the world that's watching you. You're saying, I am satisfied in Jesus. Having his presence and having his approval is all I need for lasting joy. I don't need the approval of man. I don't, I, don't, I don't need that because I have the approval of God. And so whenever we can endure unjust suffering well, we're displaying the work of the Spirit in our lives. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We're only able to do this by the grace of God. This is a miracle to be experienced, and it truly is radical. So teenager in the room, teenager, do you have parents that rarely recognize you? I'm serious, teenagers. Do you work hard? Do you really do your best? And your parents just don't see it. They don't acknowledge it. They say, more, better grades, 98, not good enough, show me 100 next time. No, I need more. Do more. Produce more. Do better. And you feel like you're honestly trying and your parents just don't see it. That is an injustice. It's an injustice. Parents, do you do your absolute best to take care of your teenage children do you honestly take care of them and try to teach them and model Christ-likeness and pay for all of their expenses and do your absolute best? You're really sacrificing for them. And parents, you rarely hear the words, thank you. And your teenager just doesn't get it and doesn't say thank you. That is an injustice. Employee, do you work really hard at work and you're honestly maintaining integrity and purity and you're doing your best at work and there are people that come in at 10 and leave at 12 after a full day's work and they get ahead and you get penalized and you're suffering at work and the only thing you've honestly done is try to please Jesus at work. That is an injustice. It's a grave injustice. Non-married adult in the room, 
I know most of us are married, so I can talk to people that are married all, every week all the time in parenting, but let's talk for a second to those in the room that are adults and yet not married. Were you pursuing someone romantically that you thought had great potential? He or she seemed to love Jesus, and, and you were investing emotion and time and energy into this relationship, and this person presented themselves one way and then later realized, man, they were just lying to you. They were just deceiving you. And you're like, man, it's okay. I'm glad I know I'll get out of this. But I wish I would have known that a year ago. I just wasted a year on you. Why weren't you honest with me a year ago? That is an injustice. When we all feel the sting of injustice, and all of us will in one way or another, we all suffer unjust suffering. We are called to display the holy and gracious character of God in the middle of that unjust suffering. And it's supernatural. A gracious thing. We can only do it by the grace of God. What is the means? So we're seeing here, number one, the first truth is that we can do this only by the grace of God. How does he do it? What is the means? How does, how does this happen in our daily lives? And so I understand it's God's grace, but how is it applied to me? How does this actually work? Number two, we display the glory of God in the middle of unjust suffering by focusing on God. Number two, by focusing on God. You see it in verse 19. He says, but this is a gracious thing. There you see that it's God's grace. When mindful of God, there's a key. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says this is an act of God's grace that you receive when you're mindful of God. There's the how this happens. You see, you don't focus on the person who's offending you. You don't focus on your miserable circumstances. You don't focus on your crummy boss. You don't focus on the situation that just seems impossible. You focus on the character of God. That's hope. Focusing on your circumstances leads to despair. We focus on the person of Jesus. Be mindful of God. If you're in the room and you have repented with all your heart, are trusting in Jesus, you're a follower of, of the King, you have union with Christ. Well, what exactly does that mean to have union with Christ? You are joined to Jesus through the Holy Spirit received through faith. So his spirit is in you through your faith. And every person that is following Jesus has the work that he accomplished on the cross is applied to us through the Holy Spirit. So what he accomplished on the cross for anyone that will repent and believe is and applied through the work of the Spirit. And so our union means that Christ is in us, and it means that we are in Christ. So being a disciple of Jesus means that his Spirit this is, this is supernatural, but the Spirit of God is interwoven with your human spirit. And this is a profound mystery of how this is even possible. 
but it's a mystery. It's a miracle that we experience union with Christ. And so God, God's empowering grace. So he has this grace, this gracious thing that empowers us to do the impossible when we're mindful of him. See, the Holy Spirit accomplishes his sanctifying work when Jesus is proclaimed. Read John 14 through 16. Amazing three chapters. Jesus is talking at length about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he makes it clear that the Spirit testifies about me. Which is why in churches where the, where the gospel, where Jesus is being lifted up and proclaimed, the Spirit is at work to regenerate the lost and to sanctify the believers. The Spirit is free to work when Christ is being proclaimed. And it's the same thing in your life individually. In your life, when, when you are proclaiming Christ in your life, when you are focusing on him and preaching the gospel to yourself, when you're focusing on Jesus and on his work on the cross every day, his spirit then is at work in sanctifying you, in empowering you, and giving you more of his grace so that you then can do the impossible of suffering an injustice and doing it reflecting the character of God. Do you want more of the Spirit's work in your life? Focus on Jesus. That's the way he has promised to work. When we're mindful of him, when we remember how much God loves us, when we remember that he has a good plan for us, we remember that he will never forsake us. When we feed our souls from his word and we spend time experiencing his presence and prayer, he empowers us. His grace comes in. His spirit gives us the strength that we need to do the impossible. Only when we focus on him. So if you want the spirit to do this miracle in your life, submit to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Have Jesus be your everything. Have him be your joy. What are you focused on? And that's an honest question for you to consider this week. What really has my attention? What do I really meditate on? If it's Jesus, if we're mindful of him, he'll empower us. This third step in the progression, so we're seeing that displaying God's glory in unjust suffering begins with the grace of God. It is empowered when we're mindful of him. Number three, it's based on the redemption of Christ. And so it's founded on, based on the redemption of Christ. Verses 21 through 25 describe this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. These five verses describe two realities that are being accomplished by Jesus on the cross. 
the first thing that we're here, seeing here is number three as far as just progression, the redemption of Christ. And so the two things that were happening with Christ on the cross, the first one is that he was redeeming the world from their sin. He was paying the price to liberate slaves from slavery to sin. So the only reason why we are even able to show his character in the middle of unjust suffering is because Jesus has paid the price, freed us from slavery to sin, and as our substitute has purchased our redemption. And this is all rooted in the Old Testament because the Old Testament priests, when they were about to do a sacrifice, they would put their hands on the head of the animal. Right before they would kill the animal, they put their hands on his head as a symbol to show the weight of sin, the gravity of sin, and the sin of, of the person being transferred to that animal that was on the altar. Very powerful symbol that shows that our sin requires death. And then the animal was killed. And he would die in the place of that sinner as the substitute sacrifice for the sinner, for the person. But the problem is that century after century, they continue to slaughter these animals. And sin remains. People still had sinful hearts. All the sacrifices could never take away the sin that was deep in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. The, the blood of bull and goats can never take away the sins of people. All the Old Testament sacrifices were simply pointing to a foreshadowing of, a shadow of the final and ultimate sacrifice the once-for-all sacrifice that alone can take away our sin. Which is why we read today, early in the worship gathering out of Isaiah 53, powerful text. By the way, we're looking at that in home groups this week, how Isaiah 53 is so woven into here in 1 Peter 2. Peter was clearly meditating on Isaiah 53 when the Spirit inspired him to write these words. The parallels are incredible. Everything that Christ was doing on the cross was foretold, it was promised, and it all pointed to fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. To be hung on a tree was a sign of being cursed. And he was cursed by God for you and for me. He endured our curse, our condemnation, our guilt, our sin, our shame. He endured it on the cross in his holy and perfect body. And only he could do it because fully human, he could represent you and me on the cross. But being fully God, being sinless, he could then pay off our debt. And so his work on the cross, it says that we can now live to righteousness. Now the, the power of sin is broken and we're resurrected spiritually by the Spirit of God. So now we can live lives of righteousness through his Spirit helping us. We can. Why? Because by his wounds, we've been healed. There is healing in Jesus. Is your soul wounded today? There's healing. He can heal you if you'll submit to him, if you'll yield to him. The ultimate healing here is salvation. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced true and ultimate healing? 
or you've given your life to Christ and are trusting him alone for your salvation. If you have never experienced that, you can today. We don't have to have bitterness or anger or resentment. We don't have to live like that, even if there is injustice. We can display forgiveness and grace because of Christ's work on the cross, based upon his redemption. Let's review and get to number four, last point. So we're able to display God's glory in the middle of unjust suffering. One, by the grace of God. Two, we're able to do so by focusing on God. Three, based upon the redemption of Christ. Number four, lastly, by following the example of Christ. We just read that. In these verses, the second reality of Christ on the cross, one, he was paying the price, he was redeeming us. Secondly, he was giving us an example to follow. So on the cross, he was atoning for our sin, but he was giving us a powerful example of how to live. If you read here in this language of of an example, the language there is actually of a small child learning the ABCs, learning the alphabet, where where they would trace over the, the letters to learn how to form their letters. And so the language here is describing that our lives, that we need to trace our lives around Jesus so that we begin to look like him, following his example. You know, sometimes I think that we think to ourselves, there's always going to be suffering in this world, and that's just my fate. It's just my lot. That's just my fate is to suffer. But that's actually not true. If you're a disciple of Jesus, it's not your fate to suffer. It's your calling to suffer. It says it in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The greatest injustice ever done in the history of the universe was a king of glory with no sin being crucified like a criminal. There's no greater injustice than Jesus dying on the cross. And these evil men that were abusing and torturing and killing Jesus, the very men that drove the the, the nails through the hands and feet of our love, Jesus. These evil men, what did Jesus do for them? He prayed for them. From the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He prayed. He asked God the Father to forgive them for this great evil and injustice. Why was Jesus able, who committed no sin, who had the greatest injustice ever committed towards him, how was he able to show the grace of God? It says in verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him judges justly. There's the key. We know for certain that one day God is going to balance the scales of justice, that he is the ultimate just judge. See, as believers in Jesus, when when we're told from God's word 
to endure injustice with God's grace. It's not that we're denying the injustice. Hear me. I'm not saying be a stoic or a fatalist and deny that there's an injustice. I'm not a Buddhist who says deny your cravings and and detach from the things that you love so that then you can escape suffering. No way. We are not Buddhistic, fatalistic, stoics who deny pain and evil and suffering. We look at the pain and the evil and the injustice and we call it for what it is and we say that is an injustice. That is wrong and it ought not to happen. We call it for what it is. We don't deny it. But how are we able to then endure it with God's grace? Because we know that God is going to make all things right one day. Every evil is going to be paid back. No injustice will remain in this universe. God the judge will make every wrong right. Every single injustice will be paid for. He judges justly. And so every single sin will be paid for either by Christ on the cross or by the individual paying for it himself for eternity in hell. There's no other option. God is just, and he will maintain his justice. He judges justly. Before we cry out for justice, let's remember that we really don't want God's justice. Because God's justice towards me will be me in hell forever. I am desperate for God's grace. He maintained his justice with Jesus paying for it. But the key here is the only way that we can maintain humility and grace patience in the middle of injustice towards us is to remember the gospel. When we retaliate, when we get bitter or angry or slandered and we respond poorly to injustice, we are saying that we don't trust God enough. We don't trust him and we take it into our own hands. We must not do that. This is designed to fill you with hope in the middle of injustice. Hope that God sees. He knows. He sees and knows so much that he sent Jesus to pay for every injustice, even the sins that we commit, the injustices that we inflict on others. That's been paid for by Christ on the cross. We're desperate for his grace. And we are called to endure suffering with patience to show the excellency of God's grace. That is what we do. We forgive those who assault us. We forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. We show grace to those that hurt us because God has shown us grace. We don't pay back evil because God did not pay back our evil. He sent Jesus to pay for it to maintain justice, but show us mercy, brother or sister. Are you struggling with forgiveness today? Is there someone in your life that you are having a really hard time forgiving? The solution is look to the cross. What you see on the cross is forgiveness for you that you don't deserve, and yet God freely gave it to you. When we don't 
want to forgive or have a hard time forgiving, it shows that either we don't understand the gravity of our own sin or we don't understand how much Christ did on the cross to pay for it. When we look to the gospel, when we're mindful of God, he empowers us to do the impossible, which is to forgive those who hurt us. We are called to suffer with patient faith in God because we have a shepherd and an overseer who loves us and leads us. We were made to know and enjoy God because he's the only source of joy. Joy does not come from this world. If, if You can't stop all the injustices. That won't happen when Christ returns, and he will do it. Joy is found in enjoying Jesus, trusting him right now, even when it's really hard. I think it's really interesting. It's almost funny, like it's not, but it kind of is, how we know, because we hear it all the time on Friday mornings, we know that the idols of this world aren't going to satisfy us. We know that our idols aren't going to bring joy. And yet, I think it's kind of strange how we ask God to take away our problems, take away our injustices, but what we really want is more of the best of what this world has to offer. We say, God, take away this problem. God, fix this. God, fix her. Or whatever it might be in your life. And we're not asking for God's grace. We're not, we're not asking him to conform us to the image of Jesus. We're saying, fix my problem. We're saying, give me more of what I want. And we're actually looking for joy in the things of this world. And they were surprised. Oh, it's not satisfying. Really? We already know things of this world don't satisfy. You see, God's promises to you and me are not escape suffering. That's what we think we want. But God doesn't say, I promise to escape suffering. He says, you were called to follow the example of Jesus in suffering to show my glory. You know what the, you know what the promises are in the middle of our suffering? My grace is sufficient for you. You know the promise in the middle of suffering? I'll be with you forever to the end of the age. The promise in suffering is, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. The promise is Jesus. The hope is God in the middle of <laughs> all the junk of our lives. His grace is sufficient. We are so desperate for God, and we don't even realize how desperate we are for him until it hits the fan, until it gets really hard, and we realize, oh, oh, that's right. I am desperate for God. And so it's typically, usually out of God's mercy that he allows us to go through hard times so that we can remember that we really are desperate for him. And he is working the circumstances to display his glory in and through us and for our good. And the ultimate good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we trust him. We trust him. Are you willing today to let go of the self-pity? 
Are you willing to let go of that victim mentality? Are you going to let go of your bitterness and embrace Jesus? Yes, life is unfair. This acknowledges it very clearly. Life is unfair. But we have the example of Jesus. We entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly, who loves you desperately and wants you to have fullness of life as you enjoy him. So let us do that. Be mindful of him, enjoy him, and display his glory in the middle of unjust suffering. Will you pray with me? Our Holy Father, we feel so privileged that you would give us your word, that you would speak such truth to us through your word, Truth that at times is so difficult for us to hear because we are so weak. We confess to you today that we are weak and we are so needy. We need you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, to be mindful of you, to trust in your grace, to remember what your son did on the cross and for you to help us to follow your son's example of suffering well as we wait for that day when you come back in full glory and you'll make all things right. And we will see you as you are, Jesus. And all of these pains and frustrations will be a memory. We praise you for loving us, for saving us. Help us. Help us to display your glory in Abu Dhabi. We so want to for your glory for your purposes. I ask that you would help us now in the name of our King, our Savior Jesus. Amen.